0: We continue with Part 3, Section B-2, Immunity from the Indictment's Charges. In addition to the generally applicable concerns discussed, the allegations of the indictment implicate the Article II interests investing authority in a new president and the citizenry's interest in democratically selecting its president. The indictment alleges that the assertedly official actions at issue here were undertaken by former President Trump in furtherance of a conspiracy to unlawfully overstay his term as president and to displace his duly elected successor. That alleged conduct violated the constitutionally established design for determining the results of the presidential election, as well as the Electoral Count Act of 1887, neither of which establishes a role for the president in counting and certifying the electoral college votes. The alleged conduct also violated Article II's mandate that a president hold his office during the term of four years. The Twentieth Amendment reinforces the discrete nature of a presidential term, explicitly providing that the terms of the president and vice president shall end at noon on the twentieth day of January, and the terms of their successors shall then begin. Upon the expiration of the time for which he is elected, a former president returns to the mass of the people again, and the power of the executive branch vests in the newly elected president. The president, of course, also has a duty under the take care clause to faithfully enforce the laws. This duty encompasses following the legal procedures for determining election results and ensuring that executive power vests in the new president at the constitutionally appointed time. To the extent former President Trump maintains that the post-2020 election litigation that his campaign and supporters unsuccessfully pursued implemented his take-care duty, he is in error. Former President Trump's alleged conduct conflicts with his constitutional mandate to enforce the laws governing the process of electing the new president. The public has a strong interest in the foundational principle of our government that the will of the people, as expressed in the Electoral College vote, determines who will serve as president. The Supreme Court recently noted that the framers made the president the most democratic and politically accountable official in government, the only one who, along with the vice president, is elected by the entire nation. To justify and check the president's unique authority in our constitutional structure, Article 2 renders the president directly accountable to the people through regular elections. As James Madison put it, a dependence on the people is no doubt the primary control on the government. Thus, the quadrennial presidential election is a crucial check on executive power, because a president who adopts unpopular policies or violates the law can be voted out of office. Former President Trump's alleged efforts to remain in power despite losing the 2020 election were, if proven, an unprecedented assault on the structure of our government. He allegedly injected himself into a process in which the president has no role the counting and certifying of the Electoral College votes, thereby undermining constitutionally established procedures and the will of the Congress. To immunize former President Trump's actions would further aggrandize the presidential office, already so potent and so relatively immune from judicial review, at the expense of Congress. As Justice Jackson warned, Executive power has the advantage of concentration in a single head in whose choice the whole nation has a part, making him the focus of public hopes and expectations. In drama, magnitude, and finality, his decisions so far overshadow any others that, almost alone, he fills the public eye and ear." No other personality in public life can begin to compete with him in access to the public mind through modern methods of communication. By his prestige as head of state and his influence upon public opinion, he exerts a leverage upon those who are supposed to check and balance his power, which often cancels their effectiveness. We cannot accept former President Trump's claim that a president has unbounded authority to commit crimes that would neutralize the most fundamental check on executive power, the recognition and implementation of election results. Nor can we sanction his apparent contention that the executive has carte blanche to violate the rights of individual citizens to vote and to have their votes count. At bottom, former President Trump's stance would collapse our system of separated powers by placing the president beyond the reach of all three branches. Presidential immunity against federal indictment would mean that, as to the president, the Congress could not legislate, the executive could not prosecute, and the judiciary could not review. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter. Careful evaluation of these concerns leads us to conclude that there is no functional justification for immunizing former presidents from federal prosecution in general or for immunizing former President Trump from the specific charges in the indictment. In so holding, we act, not in derogation of the separation of powers, but to maintain their proper balance. C. The Impeachment Judgment Clause The strongest evidence against former President Trump's claim of immunity is found in the words of the Constitution. The Impeachment Judgment Clause provides that judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. But the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment, according to law. U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. That language limits the consequences of impeachment to removal and disqualification from office, but explicitly preserves the option of criminal prosecution of an impeached official according to law. Former President Trump agrees that the Impeachment Judgment Clause contemplates and permits the prosecution of a former president on criminal charges. He argues only that such a former president first must be impeached by the House and convicted by the Senate. In other words, he asserts that under the clause, a former president enjoys immunity for any criminal acts committed while in office, unless he is first impeached and convicted by the Congress. Under that theory, he claims that he is immune from prosecution because he was impeached and acquitted. By taking that position, former President Trump potentially narrows the party's dispute to whether he may face criminal charges in this case consistent with the impeachment judgment clause. If the clause requires an impeachment conviction first, he may not be prosecuted, but if it contains no such requirement, the clause presents no impediment to his prosecution. Former President Trump also implicitly concedes that there is no absolute bar to prosecuting assertedly official actions. He argues elsewhere in his brief that his impeachment on the charge of inciting insurrection was based on conduct that was the same and closely related to the official acts charged in the indictment. And he agrees that if he had been convicted by the Senate in that impeachment trial, he would not be immune from prosecution for the official acts at issue here. Thus, he concedes that a president can be prosecuted for broadly defined official acts, such as the ones alleged in the indictment, under some circumstances, i.e., following an impeachment conviction. The Impeachment Judgment Clause is focused solely on those who are convicted by the Senate following impeachment by the House. The first part of the clause limits the penalties that can be imposed based on an impeachment conviction. Quote, judgment in cases of impeachment shall not extend further than to removal from office and disqualification to hold and enjoy any office of honor, trust, or profit under the United States. U.S. Constitution Article 1, Section 3, Clause 7. The second part makes clear that the limited consequences of impeachment do not immunize convicted officers from criminal prosecution. Quote, the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and impeachment, according to law. In former President Trump's view, however, The word convicted in the second phrase implicitly bestows immunity on presidents who are not convicted based on a negative implication. He asserts that the impeachment judgment clause presupposes that a president is not criminally liable absent a conviction in the Senate. Other courts have rejected this tortured interpretation of the Impeachment Judgment Clause, which previously has been advanced to support claims of judicial immunity. Moreover, former President Trump's interpretation runs counter to the text, structure, and purpose of the Impeachment Judgment Clause. To begin, former President Trump's reliance on a negative implication is an immediate red flag. The framers knew how to explicitly grant criminal immunity in the Constitution as they did to legislators in the speech or debate clause, yet they chose not to include a similar provision granting immunity to the president. The impeachment judgment clause merely states that the party convicted shall nevertheless be subject to criminal prosecution. The text says nothing about non-convicted officials former President Trump's reading rests on a logical fallacy, stating that if the president is convicted, he can be prosecuted, does not necessarily mean that if the president is not convicted, he cannot be prosecuted. Another important clue is the clause's use of the word nevertheless, as in, the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable. The meaning of nevertheless, according to a contemporaneous 18th-century dictionary, is notwithstanding that, which in turn means, without hindrance or obstruction from. The Impeachment Judgment Clause contains no words that limit criminal liability, and, to the contrary, it uses nevertheless to ensure that liability will not be limited even after an official is impeached, convicted, and removed from office. The text of the Impeachment Judgment Clause reflects its purpose. To allocate responsibility between the legislative and executive branches for holding impeached officers accountable for misconduct. In 18th century Great Britain, impeachment could result in capital punishment, fine and ransom, or imprisonment. The framers chose to withhold such broad power from the Senate, specifying instead that the Senate could impose only political, not ordinary, criminal punishments. That approach naturally raised the question whether the punishments the founding generation was accustomed to seeing in British impeachment proceedings, could be imposed at all under the new American government. The framers wished to make clear that a president would still be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. They therefore added the provision that, quote, the party convicted shall nevertheless be liable and subject to indictment, trial, judgment, and punishment according to law. As the Office of Legal Counsel noted, that second part makes clear that the restriction on sanctions in the first part was not a prohibition on further punishments. Rather, those punishments would still be available, but simply not to the Senate. In short, then, the framers intended impeached officials to face criminal liability according to law. To counter the historical evidence that explains the purpose of the Impeachment Judgment Clause, former President Trump turns to one sentence written by Alexander Hamilton in The Federalist 69. Quote, the President of the United States would be liable to be impeached, tried, and upon conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes or misdemeanors removed from office and would afterwards be liable to prosecution and punishment in the ordinary course of law. He focuses on the word afterwards and suggests that a president is not liable to prosecution and punishment until after he has been impeached and convicted by the Senate. But we think the more significant word in Hamilton's statement is liable, which means subject to. Hamilton specifies that a president would be subject to impeachment, trial, conviction, and removal from office, and afterwards would be subject to prosecution and punishment without regard to the verdict in the impeachment proceeding. Moreover, in the very next sentence of the same essay, Hamilton stresses that the president must be unlike the King of Great Britain, who was sacred and inviolable. It strains credulity that Hamilton would have endorsed a reading of the Impeachment Judgment Clause that shields presidents from all criminal accountability unless they are first impeached and convicted by the Congress. Other historical evidence further supports our conclusion. For example, many founding era sources state that an impeached and acquitted official may face criminal indictment and trial. Edmund Pendleton, president of the Virginia Ratifying Convention, noted that Senate obstruction of an impeachment charge would not allow an official to escape accountability because the people may yet resort to the courts of justice as an acquittal would not bar that remedy. Similarly, James Wilson, a member of the Constitutional Convention Committee that drafted the Impeachment Judgment Clause, argued as follows. Though senators may not be convicted on impeachment before the Senate, they may be tried by their country, and if their criminality is established, the law will punish. A grand jury may present, a petty jury may convict, and the judges will pronounce the punishment. In drafting the Impeachment Judgment Clause, to the extent that the framers contemplated whether impeachment would have a preclusive effect on future criminal charges, the available evidence suggests that their intent was to ensure that a subsequent prosecution would not be barred. Joseph Story explained that the Impeachment Judgment Clause removed doubt that a second trial for the same offense could be had, either after an acquittal or a conviction in the court of impeachments. Story explained that without a criminal trial, the grossest official offenders might escape without any substantial punishment, even for crimes which would subject their fellow citizens to capital punishment. Finally, the practical consequences of former President Trump's interpretation demonstrate its implausibility. The Impeachment Judgment Clause applies not just to presidents, but also to the vice president and all civil officers of the United States. Thus, his reading would prohibit the executive branch from prosecuting current and former civil officers for crimes committed while in office unless the Congress first impeached and convicted them. No court has previously imposed such an irrational impeachment-first constraint on the criminal prosecution of federal officials. Even if there is an atextual basis for treating presidents differently from subordinate government officials, as former President Trump suggests, his proposed interpretation still would leave a president free to commit all manner of crimes with impunity, so long as he is not impeached and convicted. Former President Trump's interpretation also would permit the commission of crimes not readily categorized as impeachable, i.e. treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. And if 30 senators are correct, crimes not discovered until after a president leaves office. All of this leads us to conclude that under the best reading of the Impeachment Judgment Clause, a former president may be criminally prosecuted in federal court without any requirement that he first be impeached and convicted for the same conduct. We've just finished the fifth episode in this opinion, and next will be the sixth and final episode where we will pick up with part four of the opinion. Until then, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.